Okay, so so folks, the stories of Super Bowl champions are always fascinating, always. After all, some of them even come from the relative obscurity of Alaska and the 10th round of the draft to not only thrive, but to become a two-time Pro Bowler, three-time Super Bowl champion, media analyst stands parallel and genuinely top look. Sometimes they happen to just be our next guest. Today, delighted to be joined by Mark Schlereff, Stink in the House. Mark, an honor to speak to you again. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, things are good, man. I'm, I'm excited for this game. I'm excited for the Super Bowl. Uh, it's uh, Super Bowl 55. So I just turned 55 the other day. So I, uh, my birthday coincides with the Super Bowl. And here's a little note fact. I'm probably, I, I might be the only guy. Well, I'm the only guy that I know of. It doesn't mean I'm the only guy, but I'm the only guy that I know of. I'm probably the only guy in history uh, well, I know I'm the only guy in history to win Super Bowl 32 on his 32nd birthday. So I actually played in Super Bowl 32 on my 32nd birthday. It was January 25th, 1998. So uh, I'm sure other guys have won the Super Bowl on their birthday, but not the Super Bowl of, uh, not the, the, the Super Bowl of the age of their birthday. So I got to be the only guy in history to do that. I, I love that there, man. I love that there. And, and, and yeah. like, talking about that Super Bowl and even about your career and that game in a second. But Mark, I ask everybody this, especially people coming on from the States, any Irish connections? Obviously, we're on the Irish NFL show. A- any ties to Ireland at all? Well, as a matter of fact, yeah. So, uh, so my daughter is really best buddies with Bono's daughter. And so... Have you ever seen Bono without a sunglasses on? Because I have, because my daughter's had them on. So, <laughs> so I've never, I've never, I've gone to a couple shows. I've never gotten to meet him, but I'm a huge, uh, just a huge U2 fan. And, um, and so I've gotten through my daughter, uh, I've gotten to go to a bunch of shows. I haven't met the band yet, but uh, I look forward to that day because. Um, obviously the soundtrack of, uh, the soundtrack of my college days is, uh, and I, that's all I listened to anyhow, eighties music. So, uh, they're a big part of, uh, the soundtrack of my today as well. Now, Mark, um, as Michael mentioned in the intro, um, you're the first, uh, born and raised Alaskan. I know there are some guys with military family backgrounds who played, but you're the first born and raised to, to play in the NFL. But your journey uh, to the league, uh, I know you, you've you talked to us before about the, the decision came down to Hawaii or Idaho. And uh, maybe uh, you could tell us a, a little bit more about uh, about making that decision and, and your time in, in college and, and towards the league. Yeah, well, I'm sure. I mean, I, I'm sure... Ireland, the pictures I've seen, it's beautiful, right? But you know, I'm I'm sure you know there's a lot of gray and uh, rainy weather, and uh, you know I I like I that's my my imagination. I'm, I know that it's gorgeous and I know that it's beautiful, but I know you guys get some uh, you know kind of pissing sideways rain occasionally, right? And and that's what I grew up in Alaska. I mean, you know, to me, a perfect day is 55 and drizzly, right? I mean, I think I oh my god, it's a great day. And so, you know, coming out of Alaska, there was two things that I was concerned about. Um, one, we played six or seven games when I was in high school. That was our season. And there wasn't a lot of competition because, you know, I was, you know, I was gifted athletically. So from a competition standpoint, I just didn't know really if I was good. Uh, I knew I was good in Alaska, but I didn't know if I was good anywhere else. And so that concerned me a little bit. And then um, 
I'm such a creature of habit when it came to growing up with some snow and some, you know, summertime was, you know, not, you know, outrageous. it was beautiful in Alaska, but, you know, like I said, 55 and drizzly is, is my kind of day. And I just thought, man, I can't go to Hawaii and wake up to the beach and sunshine 24 seven. Like it would drive me crazy. Great place to visit. I didn't want to live there. And then I just didn't know if uh, Idaho, Idaho was a one double A school at the time and the uh, big sky in, in Hawaii uh, was a whack school. They were a bigger school. I just didn't know if I could compete, to be honest with you. And I thought, well, if I go to Idaho, you know, at least I'll be able to play. I'll play, you know, three, four years or whatever it is. And um, and, you know, and that's all I really wanted to do was to play. So that's kind of how I made the choice. And it, it worked out really well for me. Mark, this, this time of year leading up to a Super Bowl, um, fans, media tend to reminisce about previous Super Bowl winners. And the 1991 Washington Redskins, to me, and I think the guys would agree, seem to be a very underrated Super Bowl winner. Bearing in mind, only nine sacks given up by the offensive line throughout the season, toward best in NFL history. But yeah, they don't seem to get the kudos you, know, you probably deserve. Yeah, yeah, that was a great team. As a matter of fact, oftentimes, if you go through, you know, rating the Super Bowl champions, that team is in the top three or four. And for a long time, it was rated the number one team by USA Today, rated it number one team in Super Bowl history. Um, and we didn't have, you know, we had Mark Rippon and it was he had a tremendous season, but he's not, you know, your prototypical kind of superstar quarterback. Uh, but I think we're still one of the only teams in NFL history, maybe the only team in NFL history that had like a top five defense and a top five offense. I mean, um, we were, we were an outstanding football team with a ton of depth, uh, you know, early in the season, I think we had, I think we had probably in the first five or six games of the season, we had, I think we had three shutouts on defense and, you know, we ran through the playoffs. We beat, uh, the Atlanta Falcons, I believe 24 to seven. And then we beat the, uh, uh, we beat the Detroit lions like 45 to 10 and, you know, then we we beat up on the uh, beat up on the Bills in the Super Bowl, and you know the the score was thirty seven twenty four. But it really we gave them a couple courtesy touchdowns at the end because we felt sorry for them. So uh, you know, it really wasn't it really wasn't a, a close game to be to, to be truthful with uh, everybody. Mark, I, I tell you, if you my like the weather, is, can you hear my dog is really excited to be a part of on this Ireland show. He's yeah, like, don't worry about it. <laughs> is it yeah. is it an Irish red setter or anything, Mark? You know, maybe harking What's back that? home. Is it an Irish red setter? He's harking from yeah, back home. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what we're gonna go with. We're gonna. He's an Irish um, red setter. There. I was gonna say, Mark. I mean, if, if you like the weather, you know, fifty-five and a bit drizzly, uh, you definitely love Ireland. Uh, I can uh -huh. say that, and you definitely love it with a few pints at some stage. But um, talking about the O-line, especially, I suppose, at that Washington team, because we've had a couple of O-line guys on lately, Alex Mack, Graham Glasgow, and they, they always talk about that band of brothers, that kind of innate teamwork you need on the offensive line. But that Washington team, that wasn't just any offensive line. I mean, that was the Washington Hogs. They've gone down in yeah. history as one of the greatest position groups of all time, obviously under the great coach and Joe Bugle. I mean, what does that mean to you to be kind of associated one of that clan effectively? Uh, yeah. You know, I've had, I've had two, you know, I've had two great uh, groups and a bunch of great coaches. Actually Bugle had left and Jim Hannafin took over that line, but he's a legend in the NFL as well. 
Um, and, and when you think about 19 games over the course of a 16-game season and three playoff games to give up nine sacks in 19 games um, is, you know, a record that will go down in history. I don't know that that will ever be broken, but, um, you know, incredible to be a part of that group and also to be a part of the group here in Denver that, uh, you know, went to back-to-back world championships and, uh, and, and you know, blocked for Terrell Davis, who was a 2,000-yard rusher. So, you know, those things are those things you take a lot of pride in, and, and you know it's it's the teamwork, it's the the coming together of uh, of guys and, and the bonding together. You know we cannot be productive unless we're all completely tied together. And you know it's it's funny because I always I always tell people you know when it comes to the the, the offensive line, it is this team within a team. It's like this secret mushroom society. We're the only guys that know what we're actually doing. No, even the head coach has no idea what we're doing. And, and so there's a real, there's a real bond, a real tightness that goes with playing with one another. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, I flew home from Royston, Georgia, uh, last night. I, uh, I buried a former teammate of mine, um, Tony Jones, who was a great, great player, um, 13, 14 year NFL career, pro bowl, uh, all pro left tackle, right tackle, uh, played with me here in Denver and passed away, uh, just a couple of days ago and, uh, very sad, but you know, it's, it's amazing the bond that you have that, that sacrifice for one another and, you know, a fish belly white kid from Anchorage, Alaska, and, uh, um, you know, a, a black man from, Royston, Georgia, can be eternally bonded together through their belief in Christ and their uh, love for one another and the sacrifice that they made for one another. And so, um, you know, it's it's amazing. There's a lot more that connects us than separates us. And one of the things I loved about playing offensive line was you can get guys from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different you know, economic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, um, um, geographic backgrounds, north, south, east, and west, and they come together. And to be good, they have to all sacrifice for one another, and and they have to bond together. And and that's one thing I love about playing offensive line is that mentality of um, I'll take full responsibility for everything that goes wrong. And um, I will always put everybody else in front of myself and, and to be good, you have to have that, that attitude. And, you know, I was blessed to be a part of some really great offensive lines. And that's the thing that connected them all together is every guy was unselfish. Every guy, like I always say the most beautiful part or the most beautiful thing in the world is to be in a meeting on Monday when somebody gives up a sack and to watch guys scramble to take responsibility for giving up that sack. It's not like, Hey man, it was his fault. He didn't do this. He didn't do it. was like, I'll take that man. Give it to me. You're fighting. Like we'll be literally in the meeting fighting, like screaming at each other to take responsibility to take a bad grade. I'll take the bad grade. That was mine. Like I didn't drag, you know, I got off that block too soon and I left my center out to dry and then, left tackle be like, no, 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 man. I kicked out too fast. That's a hundred percent. My, you know, like three, four guys, like literally ready to go to fisticuffs to take responsibility for a bad grade. You want to talk about the ultimate and don't point the finger, pull the thumb. It is a thumb pulling room. That is my fault. I'll take a hundred percent responsibility. 
And that's what I love about playing that position. And, um, and that's why it's so unique. And, uh, and that's why, you know, a lot of, a lot of people can't make it there. And you've sort of mentioned it there as well, Mark, you know, that transition to going to Denver to play with arguably one of the best quarterbacks and, and running back cores there ever in, in, in John Elway and Terrell Davis. How did that move come about? You know, what was the, uh, you know, what was the background of that? Can, can you even talk about the move and the transition yeah. to Denver? Well, so I had, uh, I had played um, that Super Bowl in 1991 season. And, and in 1992, I played the entire season. I hurt my knee and my elbow and um, started all 16 games, but I needed surgery from day one. So I wasn't practicing. I wasn't doing anything. Uh, I just was playing in the games. And um, like, like there was times on Saturday where like I literally couldn't put my hand down on the ground. My elbow was so bad and, and like I could barely walk. And, uh, and then I start and play the whole game on Sundays. And so anyhow, right after the 92 season, I had, uh, I had surgery on both my elbow and my knee, um, and was laid up, uh, was on a, in a kind of crutches for 10 weeks. And, uh, I had this, uh, procedure called a microfracture in my knee. And anyhow, long story short, um, Joe Gibbs retired and, uh, and Richie Pettibone took over. And in then 1993, I, uh, I had a, a sickness called GBS. It's an autoimmune uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And, and I lost all the feeling in my arms and legs for, uh, I started feeling sick at the beginning of the year before training camp. And then uh, by October, I'd lost all the feeling in my arms and legs and, and pretty much for six months, um, had no feeling in my arms and legs. And, uh, and it was a long rehab. And so I came back, that was 93, and I missed half the season. I came back in 94. When I, when I went into camp, I was 268 pounds because I hadn't put my weight back on. Um, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% by any stretch. I hadn't gained my strength back. And, um, and Norv Turner had taken over the team. And anyhow, I started the first couple games of the season. Then I got in a rotation with a guy by the name of John Giesick. And then uh, he got hurt. And then I ended up starting the last you know, last part of the, the season, last six games of the season or so. And uh, I started getting my strength back. I started playing well again. Um, and, and at that point, the Redskins told me, Hey, we're not interested in re-signing you. And, um, and so then it was like, all right, well, now I got to go find a job. You know, it was only six years in for me. And um, so then I started traveling around. I got a lot of interest around the league, but I kept failing physical. So I failed a physical in Chicago because my knee was so bad. I felt the physical in Indianapolis. Uh, I felt the physical in Atlanta, where the doctor in Atlanta uh, told me I, my left knee, I had the, the knee of a 90-year-old woman, is what he said, um, which I think is a, is a, uh, it's a, an affront to 90-year-old women. That, that just seems mean. Um, anyhow, long story short, uh, I went to Denver, and they passed me. They were going to pass me regardless. Mike Shanahan just said, pass him. He, he just plays on Sundays. So, um, that's how I got to Denver, um, after failing three physicals and, uh, and so just thankful that, uh, that Mike Shanahan had enough belief in me to say, you know, we know you're going to play and I owe him a, a debt of gratitude. I played another six years after Washington told me I was done and I couldn't play anymore. Uh, won another couple of Super Bowls, went to another pro bowl. Um, and a lot of that has to do with Mike and the way he managed my body. He took care of me, um, you know, we had a guy by the name of, you know, it's, it's funny speaking of offensive lines, it's funny 
the lessons you learn through life if you open your eyes and you know kind of open your aperture and and actually get away from yourself and your own selfishness and look at what other people do and how they respond. I had a teammate by the name of Dave Diaz Infante, um, who coaches in the league now, and we're dearest of friends. And he uh, he was nicknamed his moniker when I played in Denver was the uh, stunt guard because they practiced for me all week. And then I started on Sunday and it's funny because you would think that that would be a recipe for animosity, right? Uh, like you do all the work and I get all the glory. And yet we were best of friends. We were roommates. We studied together. Uh, we prepared together. Uh, he prepared me during the week through practice and what he saw. And I watched him and tried to help him get better. Um, and, um, and it was a true partnership. Um, my starting and my playing was a true partnership because Dave did most of the heavy lifting for me. You know, I would take a play here, a play here, maybe two plays over here. But it was the way that the, the Broncos um, could manage my body so that I could play on Sundays. And um, again, you know, you talk about selflessness and, and what it takes to be a championship organization and a championship team. And there's a guy that did all the dirty work and never ever got any of the accolades and never got a chance to play um, and um, and was a, an incredibly vital part um, of us winning multiple, you know, back-to-back -back world championships um, for what he did, you know, for my career. So, um, like I said, you know, that's that's part of playing that offensive line, part of being in that room and, um, and why it's just a unique and special, um, uh, just a unique and special position. And Mark, I suppose we, every Broncos fan is, uh, you know, I mean, my, we, we all owe a, a debt of gratitude to, to Shanahan, but um, particularly in terms of how he managed your career. Going into the Super Bowl 32 on your 32nd birthday, um, and the NFC had lorded it over the AFC, I think 13 uh, on, on the bounce and some pretty, um, they bullied uh, really their, their way. Um, the Broncos as underdogs, I suppose your reflections on, on this, on your, your Super Bowl appearances. And obviously there's, there's 32 against the Packers and then the, the following, the following year. And, uh, and obviously that, that famous photograph, uh, that, uh, gets talked about a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly enough, Super Bowl 32 was a, uh, you know, it, it was, it was interesting kind of one, because we played Green Bay in December in Green Bay in 1996, and we had locked everything up. Um, it was late in December, and we had locked everything up. And so we had a bunch of guys that were injured. I had had a knee injury or a knee surgery the week before I played, because um, that's what I did. Uh, but Gary Zimmerman missed the game with a shoulder surgery, and we had uh, – Terrell Davis didn't play. Aaron Craver started a tailback for us. And, and Elway didn't play. Bill Musgrave started. And we had half of our offense out and a bunch of key defensive players out. And they beat us down. I mean, they beat us like 42 to 7 or something. Um, and that was the previous year. And there was an arrogance about the Green Bay Packers. They had won the Super Bowl the year before. But there was an arrogance. And I think a lot of that arrogance came from the fact that um, – they beat us down so bad in that, in that December game. And I really believe that they completely underestimated who we were. We're like, that was, 
you guys didn't beat us. You beat our JV team. Like that was not, that, that was not us. And so, um, you know, there was a real feeling of confidence about what our plan was. And one of the things we did, I was talking to Brett Favre about this uh, a couple of months ago. And, you know, we were talking about that game and the disappointment he had. And I, I said, you know, we had studied your defense and we came in and Mike Shanahan said, this is how we're going to gut these guys. And so we got into, uh, we got into a, a slot formation. So we got into like, I right, which is fullback tailback tight end on the right-hand side. I write slot. So the Z goes from the strong side into the slot on the weak side and the X is out there. And so anytime you got into that formation, um, one of their, one of their adjustments was the weak side linebacker. His name was Brian Williams would get what I call a one by one hip. So he would get a yard deeper and a yard wider to take away. He's trying to take away the slant. And their safety, Leroy Butler, would come screaming down. And so basically they were exchanging responsibilities. Uh, Brian Williams, who's a skinny, he's a 225-pound outside linebacker who could really run, he, he literally became the safety, and Leroy Butler became the will linebacker. And so Mike is showing us the film of how many times, you know, they would, on the backside when they were running strong, they would just – everybody would kind of scoop or the guard and the tackle would work a double team to the backside. Will linebacker who's literally playing safety and Leroy Butler was just coming down and tackling practice in the backfield. And every time you would get into it, you know, you'd be in is next thing, you know, you're down it's second down to 13 because Leroy Butler tackled you in the backfield. And Mike was just like, Hey, we're going to exchange that. And we're going to make the will, the the safety and the safety is going to become the will. And so we're going to block that guy. And, we absolutely eviscerated them in the run game. We got in that formation. I can't tell you how many times we got in that formation. And every time it was identical. And every time we just gutted them in that formation. And, um, and they could, I mean, they didn't have any clue what we were doing. And we were, I mean, we we're just putting helmets, guards on, on Leroy Butler, right? We we're just putting helmets on him. And we're getting cut back lanes and Terrell's ripping, you know, eight yard gains and nine yard gains. And, uh, and it was a great plan um, because in that game, Elway was really, I mean, Elway didn't really, I mean, he, he completed 50% of his balls or 47% of it. He really w was not, I mean, he was not the factor in that game. It was the running game. And, um, and so anyhow, I, long story short, that was a, that was a phenomenal game plan. And we had so much confidence going into that game. We knew I, they didn't think we could run on them. We knew we'd run it down their throats. And, uh, and of course, it, it worked out in our favor. Um, and then that picture you talked about, Super Bowl 33, where we ran a QB draw. And, uh, and Elway, you know, takes a, a, a shotgun snap, sets, and then, boom, takes off. And we're, as, as he's changing, you know, I'm, my guy, I'm trying to invite my guy to rush up the field is, Elway takes off, you know, obviously he, he adjusts. And so I'm trying to drive him into the end zone and we all kind of fall in this mass of humanity in the goal line. And, and it was this real poignant kind of moment. Like we just won back to back Super Bowls. Like they're not coming back from this. And I, I think it was probably early in the fourth quarter or whatever it was. And, you know, we're face to face smashed on the goal line 
and bodies are on top of us, so we can't move. Our, both our helmets are just touching. They're connecting. And Elway is looking at me like, oh, my gosh, can you believe we just won this, uh, you know, won another Super Bowl back-to-back. So it's a, it had this real, you know, real important kind of uh, just important, you know, really heavy face about him. And uh, I looked at him, and he was like, it, it, like expecting something more than what I gave him. I just said, hi, buddy. You know, how you doing? <laughs> and uh, and he starts laughing. He goes, you are an idiot. And, you know, because it was just expecting some real hardcore football, you know, breakdown or something. I don't know. So, anyhow, that's, that, that is an iconic picture. And, uh, and you know, I, I, people send it to me all the time to autograph it and do all that kind of stuff. Mark, I'm fortunate that my teenage years, I got to experience watching John Elway and Terrell Davis playing. Um, just, is there any particular insights in your time playing with them? Anything, any great stories or memories you want to tell us? Yeah, you know, I mean, Elway was, Elway, like, you know, he never, he, like, he never cussed you out. He never yelled at anybody. The only time Elway ever raised his voice is when we got a play in late. We had to run up to the line of scrimmage and, and snap the ball. But there was just a there's a confidence about John Elway when he walked into the huddle. Like you could be down 14, and it just was you just had this feeling of we got them right where we want them. Like we're about ready to open a can of whoop ass on these guys, right? And so there was always just that confidence about John. Um, Terrell, from the day he got in from training camp, you know, Terrell, we went to Japan to play a game in Japan. Um, one of the America Bowls, and Terrell was sixth on the depth chart. I mean, I didn't even know who he was. Nobody knew him. And so he literally tried, while we were in Japan, to leave. He tried to get a ticket home because he's like, I'm sixth on the depth chart. I'm not going to make it in the NFL. And the language barrier, he, he couldn't get out of Japan. He couldn't speak the language, and the people at the hotel didn't understand what he was trying to do, and um, you know, they just knew he was with the team that was there. And so he didn't, he, he ended up not being able to get himself a ticket home um, out of Japan. So he ends up going to the game. And in the fourth quarter, we run kickoff cover and they put him in kickoff cover and he runs down and literally blows some dude up. We're playing the Niners. I mean, just absolutely smashes this guy on kickoff cover. And we're on the sideline going crazy. You know, all the starters are out and we just call him the Rook. Um, and so we go to Bobby Turner, go put the Rook in, put him in, put him in, put him in. You know, we're all yelling at Mike Shannon, put him in. So they put him in and he just starts ripping off six yard runs one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so we're all cheering this, this kid, the Rook, by the end of training camp, we ended up cutting our starter and our backup. Our starter was Rod Bernstein. And I can't remember, we cut another guy that was the backup running back because this kid showed so much potential. He ended up rushing for like 1,100 yards his first year. He just got better and better and better. And then um, in, in 2000, or excuse me, in 1998, when we're going for 2000, we're playing the Seattle Seahawks. We're winning the week, uh, the last week of the season. Um, and Terrell needed uh, like 177 yards to get 2,000. And I didn't even know he had a rib injury, right? Not that I knew. I didn't care. Like, we were like, that was on us. We're getting him 2,000 yards. Like, this is just something that's going to happen. 
It's going to happen regardless. And it was so cool because every time he'd run the ball, you know, and as we start getting kind of into the third quarter, every time he'd run the ball, we'd all yell over to the sideline, like, how many does he need? And, and there was a dude with a grease board, you know, that had like, that he was just keeping tally. So every time he like, he needs, you know, 68 yards, you know, and he hold it up. And so yeah, like we were, we were, there was no way we we're going to leave that game without him getting, you know, over 2000 yards. And so we we're just screaming to the sideline every time, run the ball, run the ball. How many more yards? How many more yards? You know, what does he need? And um, just really cool. Again, that dynamic of, of everybody fighting for one guy to get to get something that's really special, but we all share in it, you know? So um, they, they were just great. They're great teammates, great players, obviously all of famers to be sure. Yeah. Mark, I'm kind of dwelling on the fact you say Terrell Davis was sixth on the depth chart and obviously he was drafted in the sixth round. So there's a nice yeah. uh, symmetry there. And um for any of our younger viewers, I mean, like, you know, um, that Super Bowl 32 you're alluding to, I mean, Terrell Davis ran for, I think, about 157 yards and three touchdowns. As you say, I mean, you were running all over the Packers in that game, and he was the engine powered by you guys on the O-line. But I want to draw your attention to some other legendary people you've been involved with. Obviously, in a 12-year season, uh, so to a 12-year career over those seasons, you worked not only with, obviously, Mike Shanahan, as you've alluded to, but also Joe Gibbs back with the Redskins as well. So, I mean, both of them are legendary coaches. Um, how similar or different were they? And do you have any stories now, I suppose, after a, a few years retired that you uh, can share in safety about them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, both very driven, um, obviously, um, meticulous game planners. Um, so, and both of them understood kind of an identity. You know, I, I think... One of the things you get into when you when you went like I call games for Fox now and the difference, some of the differences between the really good teams and, and the very average teams are in, in my mind, it's an identity. It's a philosophy you can always hang your hat on. So every week you're going to game plan and you're going to, you know, scheme up runs or scheme up passes based upon what defense the opponent runs. Right. But you have to have an identity, something that you can hang your hat on. I think this goes for life as well. You know, a, a set of tenants that you believe in that you're not going to, you're not going to uh, deviate from. And in the NFL, to me, if, if every week you have to scheme something, if that's your plan, then you don't have an identity. And it's really hard uh, when push comes to shove to be great. And the great teams to me, understand what they are, what they're good at. It may change from year to year um, based on the personnel they have, but um, they understand that. And Joe Gibbs and, and Mike Shanahan were very much that way. They were exquisite game planners, um, taking somebody's weakness and using that, that against them. But the thing that I really appreciated was they would never, they would never take or attack a weakness of the opponent if it exposed our weakness. So, like, they're not going to trade blow for blow that way. So if there's a weakness that we have and it's going to be exposed by attacking their weakness, we'll find a different weakness. But we're never going to expose our weaknesses. 
So I, I think they were very astute game planners, but really astute, almost psychologists of what their team was and, and what was going to give them the best chance to be successful and to dominate. Um, and those are the things that, that, you know, I just, I just really appreciated about them. Joe Gibbs is one of the most regal men I've ever been around. Um, he's just a, a, a great man. And, and Mike, Mike has just become such a good friend and such a mentor. And it's funny. Um, you know, one of the things that I did when I, when I left ESPN and I went to uh, Fox to call games was I reached out to Mike and I said, Hey man, you need to help me see the game through um, more of the lens of a coach as opposed to the lens of a player. So as a player, you know, I, I mean, what's the, is, is the most popular sport in your guys' country? Is it soccer? Would that be the most popular sport that everybody plays? In Ireland, there's, there's Gaelic football, rugby, and soccer. So there's a different type of football or soccer. But oh, yeah. Okay. So whatever you play, you know, whatever position you play, like if you're a goaltender or you're a forward or whatever it is, when you watch the game, I always say you watch it through the straw hole. You know, you watch it through a straw hole. You watch your position. And you're an expert at that position. And so that's kind of just naturally where your eyes gravitate to. And I knew that about myself. I knew that I have a, a real heavy expertise on the line of scrimmage and um, defensive front sevens and offensive line. But I want to have an expertise on everything. And so I ended up uh, hooking up with Mike. I go over to Mike's house and we just study film. We watch film. And he walks me through, hey, this play, here's a play that everybody runs. And this is how this play came into, it, how this play was designed. It used to be run this way. Now we run it this way. This is how it's changed from the time I was coaching you to now. And then we watch cut-ups of, of his son, Kyle Shanahan, who coaches for the Niners. And um, he's the head coach of the Niners. And we watch game film and game footage and, um, Mike is unrelenting. Like the guy is the most driven dude. And we will sit and watch one concept. Like I sat in his office one day and we watched this, this concept called branch and all branches is like, if you run and branch to the strong side and you're a two by two formation. So you outside Z receiver and a Y the Z receiver runs a go and the Y runs an eight yard out breaking route and that's called branch um and it's it's a it's stick is a, a five to six yard out route right by the tight end that's a stick route so it's just the evolution is stick oh we run it deeper it's branch so that's that's how football works you know it's pretty simple we watched branch i'm not kidding go uh, eight yard out route right and you can run it out of, a, you know, strong or weak. You can run it out of an F and a Z or F and an X. You can run it out of, you can motion a back out and run it out of, you know, you can run it out of anything you want, right? So you can motion the back out wide and you can put the, the Z receiver in a, uh, in a close split or you can put the X receiver in a nasty split and motion the back out wide. The back can run the go and the X. So you run X branch. And the back runs the go. So you can run it any way you want, right? It's, it's, it sounds complicated, but it's pretty simple. We watched that play 
and I'm not kidding you, for two hours. Just that play for two hours. Well, and like after the, about the 40th time we watched Branch, I was like, yeah, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the same one we just watched 39 other times. Yep. For two hours, we just watched <laughs> Branch. And, and, but I go over to his house and he is, I mean, he gives me his iPad. It's funny. Like he'll give me his iPad and he'll have all these cutups from practice from the Niners. And he goes, go watch all this stuff. And then let's get back together next week. So I'm watching all the stuff that he's downloaded on his iPad and his iPad. It's like a who's who of football royalty. Like I get text message. It's Bill Belichick. It's that, you know, it's Jerry Rice is texting. So-and-so is that. And it is like a who's who. I mean, I was just like, if I wasn't an honest person, I would have just stole every number out of his contact list on his iPad. Cause they were like, they were, there's some, some incredible uh, people that I was like, I should have that number. I should have, but I didn't do it. Uh, but anyhow, he's just so gracious with his time and with his expertise and his knowledge. And he stays on top of the game. Um, he's just a phenomenal coach. I think we sound like, uh, Mark, you sound like a guy that could be the next producer of the show, getting some people on. It sounds good there. All those yeah. texts. Mark, you've been very generous with your time. You're talking about uh, watching Branch for two hours. We've got one more question each. Is that okay? Or do you have to bounce Saturday morning? Or is that. Uh, yeah, I've got plenty. i got nothing but time. Sweet, sweet. So, like, my next question is this. When I was one year old, you were playing in London with the Redskins in 1992. Uh -huh. And then you play, or well, you didn't play, you were on the broadcast team in 2019, the Bears against the Raiders in that new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Could you believe the evolution of the international game when you went to that new stadium, a stadium, a, a field that's specifically designed for the NFL? Yeah, it was, uh, it was incredible. And um, just driving through London to get to that game. Um, you know, it's, it's funny when I played, we played in old Wembley and, you know, we, we dressed in a gymnasium across the street and we walked across the street and then walked down into the stadium to play. Right. Uh, it was like playing, you know, it was like playing back when you played at pop Warner, like just stand on the side, uh, just stand in the end zone during halftime and eat orange slices. Right. It was, but it was cool. Um, and, you know, when you're a player, you don't really, you're so sequestered and you don't really get to see the city and you practice all day. And then you get back to the hotel and, you know, your wife wants to go see a show or wants to go eat. And you're just like, Lord, have mercy. I just don't, I don't want to do anything but lay in this bed. Um, so as a broadcaster, man, I got to see a little bit more of London. Um, I went to Churchill Museum and and I just walked through the park and, and I walked, you know, walked around the city and I just, I, it was fascinating to me, but driving to the stadium to call the game on Sunday and, you know, rolling down to Tottenham and we're on the main drag there and we're a couple, I don't know, a couple miles, a mile away or whatever. And, um, and just seeing every Jersey represented like every, like every, every Jersey in the NFL from the Jaguars to the giants, to the, like all walking toward Tottenham Stadium to just go enjoy this game. And um, the stadium was just absolutely gorgeous. I had a, uh, I just had a blast hanging with the, uh, hanging with the crew and um, um, sleep was, sleep was hard because the, you know, the, uh, 
I, I was always like up at, I'd fall asleep at nine and I was up at two 30 in the morning watching film, you know, like what else am I going to do? But uh, we had an absolute blast doing the game. And uh, like I said, the fans were just incredible. Um, and it is, it's amazing uh, how it's grown internationally, how many, how many people love our game. Mark, you touched on it earlier in terms of some of the injuries you had, but you had, you, I think it was 29 surgeries in total, like lesser players would would have given up much earlier. Where did the resilience like come from? Is that something that was instilled by your, your parents or you just, you know, kept coming back? Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't have any other options really. I mean, um, you know, I just always, I always wanted to be a football player. And so the only thing I wanted to do since the time I was 12 and I was told, you know, my entire life, um, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, I grew up in Alaska. Nobody from Alaska goes to the NFL. I went to the University of Idaho. Nobody goes, you know, to the NFL or, you know, it just was one of those things that, um, that was always kind of odds stacked against you. And then to have all the injuries that I had, um, it became, you know, it became, I guess, a game within a game to me. Um, like how, how, poorly can I feel how badly can I be hurt and how good can I still play and um and I wore that as a badge of honor is uh um I mean I've shown up to games on like literally on crutches on Saturday and played all six you know played 65 plays and whipped ass and took names um it just was always one of those things that uh, I took a lot of pride in and I think one of the things that that was always really apparent to me um, was I always had an attitude of selflessness. I always had an attitude of every guy on this team is more important than me. And it is my responsibility from the equipment managers on down. Um, it is my responsibility to love them, to care for them, to be a part um, of their lives. And, um, and it's my responsibility to play for them, regardless of how I feel. And that was, I, I took that very seriously. You know, uh, um, I just, I always, I always looked at it, um, always looked at it almost like biblically from, from Philippians chapter two, when Paul is writing to the church of Philippi and, and talks about, um, you know, having one mind, one spirit united in love, um, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, treat others as more important than self. And I got, that was always, that was always kind of my, you want to talk, call it my personal mission statement. That was part of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be about. And um, like I said, I took that very seriously and, and it's probably the reason I was able to line up and, um, you know, line up and play regardless of, of how I feel felt. And, and I always, I always thought this too, is, uh, it's anybody can play when they feel good. Um, I'm going to whip your ass when I feel like shit. And that's that, that's how I always approached it. And, um, and like I said, it was just a, uh, it was more to me, a, a, a badge of honor. And it was a way to, uh, it was a way to represent my team, but it was also a way to, uh, to, kind of sacrifice for my teammates to 
kind of a almost uh, to show them how much I love them and how much I care for them. Mark, you, you've touched on the fact that you're now covering games for Fox and you've made the transition from being a player into the media side of things. Just looking ahead to the to the big game in Tampa, what's your general overall thoughts on the game and the matchup between the Chiefs and the Bucks? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it really is one of the premier defenses in Tampa Bay versus one of the premier offenses in Kansas City. Um, and... You know, really interesting because Tampa Bay, they're so fast. All three levels of their defense, their defensive line, um, you know, their outside guys with Shaq Barrett and, and JPP, uh, Jason Pierre-Paul, their inside linebackers, the two duo of uh, Devin White and Levante David are as good as there is. Their safeties in Whitehead and Antoine Winfield Jr., who's a rookie, are, are amazing. They play with three corners. Um very, very underrated, very aggressive, very physical, very underrated cover corners. They just bring pressure. They bring blitz pressure. <clears throat> you know, and, the, and when I was in Washington and Joe Bugle used to say this all the time, he said, hey, man, we beg them to blitz us because we live by the blitz and you die by the blitz. And if you know how to pick up the blitz, I'm sorry, you're going to get you're going to get eviscerated if you're good at it, if you understand the timing of it. The timing of blitz to me is really important. And if you can affect the quarterback's throw on the fourth step of your blitz, you're going to have success. If you can make as an offense, if you can get that guy off his, off his route, if you can chip him enough to get him off his route, or if you can quick snap him so he's a step and a half behind before he hits his spot, then you're going to, you're going to destroy, you know, the defense. And so, Tampa is exceptional with their blitz packages, the way they run. They are as good as there is in this, in this league, a uh, great at stopping the run. Um, and I just believe that Kansas city is maybe the best I've ever seen at picking it all up and, uh, and having a quarterback that can absolutely destroy you. So like that is to me, that is the great matchup in this game. Um, if I was pressed, I would probably pick Kansas city. Um, but, uh, you know, it really comes down to me is how do they deal with that? How does how do, how do they deal with Tampa's defense and can Tampa's defense make enough plays? Because they are one of those they're one of those teams that really believes in, hey, we're going to give up two or three big plays. They're going to hurt us, but we're going to make six or seven. And, you know, we're going to win that battle. We're going to get six. We're going to give up two. That's a plus four in our in our mind. That's a couple of turnovers. That's maybe a defensive score or a, a real short field for our offense that's how they play the game and um if kansas city can pick it up and and flip that script and win six to two on the other side of that and make six big plays um then they're just done they're unbeatable when they play that way so i'll pick kansas city but uh but that's that to me is the most interesting matchup of the uh, of the game Mark, I love your quote actually from Philippians because uh, I think it was in chapter four. There's a great quote as well as, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ mm -hmm. Jesus. And you uh, have been fantastic today and thank you so much for your time. Um, I want to leave you with one small thought, which is not only have you had great glory in, in Christ and obviously in your career, but um, to me, Mark, I think I'm going to think of you as Lionel Richie going forward um, <laughs> because you're built like a brick house. You can block all night long. And you're not yeah. one, not twice. You're three times a Super Bowl winner. 
Uh, thank uh, you so much for your time today, mate. It's been fantastic. I, I've never been compared to Lionel Richie, but I, I will, I will take it. I, I love it. <laughs> I thank you so much. I appreciate that. You guys are awesome. Awesome, Mark Schneider. Thanks very much, man. And you can tell DMac that on Monday morning about Lionel Richie and Talos as well. Yes, I will. I will definitely. I will definitely say that. Uh, I'll put that on my radio show here shortly. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your time, Mark. Really appreciate thanks, your Mark. time, and, and you're very generous. You guys, and yeah, yep. Anytime. Be well. Uh, glad to be able to hook up. Hi, folks. Welcome to Super Moment Stories of the Big Game, brought to you by Kari Out Off License, your place for big nights in. If you're looking to stock up ahead of Sunday's big night, Kari Out has some great offers at the moment, including uh, Blossom Hill Wine, which is now €7.99 Euro each. Yeah, an 18 pack of Miller, 330 mils, which is 19 euro 99 cents. An 8 pack of Budweiser, 500 milliliters, which is now 13 euro 99 cents. White Claw, 330 milliliter, four pack range, is 9 euro 99 cents. And you can check out Carry Out All Fives on Facebook for more. Okay, folks, welcome back to Super Moments Stories of the Big Game. Looking at great moments from the Big Game all week long, going ahead of Super Sunday on the Irish NFL Show, 4 p.m. this Sunday. Today we're looking at a Super Bowl that happened in 2014 and it was between the Seattle Seahawks and the Denver Broncos and that's all I'm going to say as a Broncos fan. I'm going to pass it over to Seahawks fan uh, Nick to maybe try and tell us what happened. Nick, how would you describe that game? Um, fantastic in one word. Uh, it was an unbelievable experience. It was probably the second or third Super Bowl that I'd watched. I- I'd watched Russell Wilson and the Seahawks be knocked out of the playoffs the year before and so I followed them then for this season and you know Russell Wilson the leads in a boom what a, what a team to follow um, but watching that game uh, here in Lurgan in a, in a pub that's actually now burnt to the ground funny enough uh, that when that first snap went over Peyton Manning's head and that set the tone for that whole game it was just unbelievable uh, the Seahawks were relentless uh, Russell Wilson was a bit you know cagey to start I remember he missed like a wide open past the flat uh, for his first throw and thinking the, the stage the occasion has got to him but from there on I mean every single time they got the ball they looked like scoring Percy Harvin had an unbelievable jet sweep that went for nearly 70 yards just shy of a score the second half kickoff took back for a, a touchdown you know that's the second time in two years that that had happened that had happened the year before as well but from the Seahawks point of view I just couldn't believe how often we scored um, how well we kept Peyton Manning and Coven check and it, words sometimes escape you when you try to describe how good it was you know mind you the year after 49 wasn't too good but 48 was a good one and one that, that will be remembered and for me it, it, it was one that was remembered for the wrong reasons and I think after that season column it was we really thought that we were going to win that win that game and I think everybody thought Peyton Manning was, was going to go right yeah, well, I mean, um, the, the worry, though, was always that it was a, a cold Super Bowl and uh, Peyton at, at his age. Um, being a Broncos fan, though, the thing is that that's not even our worst loss in the Super Bowl. Uh, so you're kind of getting immune to it. Like, we got beaten 55-10 by the 49ers. Uh, we got beaten 42-10 by the um, Washington football team. 
um, the, the Giants put almost 20 points on us. So we're really good at getting to Super Bowls and getting absolutely obliterated. I remember watching it in the World Shed in Dublin, sat down, like uh, was there, and the, um, my I ordered chicken wings. They arrived as they went down in front of me. The ball went over Peyton Manning's head. Fastest score in Super Bowl history. Knew it was going to be a long night from there. But the wings were really good. And you probably could have done with a carry-on at that point from the carry-on off license, I think, in that sense. But uh, Brian, you know, it was an interesting game, I guess, for the neutral. Did, did you enjoy a blowout as a neutral? No, I was also in the World Shed that night, and I think by and large, most fans knew by the end of the fourth quarter that this game was probably over. It didn't start too well. We saw it recently, actually, in the playoff game, Steelers Browns, similar kind of play, albeit the Browns scored a touchdown, and the game goes that kind of way after that. And one thing I always think about, albeit not necessarily around the game, the hype about the first ever cold Super Bowl and the fact that it was in New York and everything that came with that. And it was such an anticlimax. I mean, there was people leaving the woodshed early in the third quarter. And having been there for so many Super Bowls to the very end, as Mark knows, where the Giants have thankfully beaten Patriots twice. And other games I've gone down to death, such as the Saints and the Colts in 2000 and 2010. But for that particular game, it was for what was a very good season and a very good championship round of games where the Seahawks beat the 49ers and the 49ers nearly won the game at the very end in um, in Seattle. For the final to end in that way, it's disappointing. But I think, in fairness to Seattle, they were the best team that season point And Mark, you know, we're talking there about Caria and his great offers ahead of the Super Bowl, obviously, in the 18 pack of Miller, which is now 19 year old 99. Paul Miller didn't show up that night in New York, did he, Mark? Unfortunately, Michael, too few people for the Denver Broncos showed up at all. Um, you know, they showed up and they got off the team bus. You know, you have to put this in context as well. Remember, this was an historic team that year. 55 touchdowns for Peyton Manning. First time in NFL history that four uh, of uh, receivers have uh, caught more than 10 touchdowns in a season. Um, uh, you know, you had Welke, you had some some amazing players um, on that Denver Broncos side that time. And, you know, going into the game, there was all this talk about, oh, you know, it's number one offense against number one defense, number one offense against number one defense. And the old adage is defense wins championships. And usually the number one defense does come out on top in that regard. Peyton Manning, it wasn't just the first snap. And yes, it set the tone for the game, but two interceptions in the first half. Uh, another pick six in a Super Bowl. Um, you know, he has a habit, seemingly. Um, at the time, of course, the stat was, and we might come to a Super Bowl later in the uh, the uh, these shows that broke this stat, but the stat was if it's a quarterback through a pick six, the team went on to lose the game. And this was another epitome of it. And look, it was such a tonking. It's almost like the game isn't that much worth talking about. I know Mick would want to relive every play, but, you know, 36-0 down into the third quarter. For the general neutral in this type of Super Bowl, it was switch-off time. It was drink some more beer from carry-out off-license. It was, you know, just kick back and maybe even for us in Ireland, get some sleep at that point because it was very clear how it was going. Um, one of, I think the Broncos are responsible for three of the four worst Super Bowl losses of all time. Only the uh, the Cowboys' obliteration, the Bills kind of 
stops them from a clean sweep. But it was, in fairness, one of the greatest obliterations in the last 20 years of Super Bowl um, by one of the greatest offense again <laughs> against one of the greatest offenses of the last 20 years. I remember sitting in Madrid at 4 a.m. in the morning, two weeks before that, at the end of January in 2014, and Richard Sherman was speaking to Aaron Andrews. And you started to think whenever Kaepernick was down, I think Kaepernick might, might got, got very close to winning that game. With the, like he had the ball. He, they, the 49ers could have arguably got to that game. And look, I think what Mark said there is a fair point. But there's a lot of people as well that would argue. I know the Broncos been over the line two years later, but a lot of people. Um, would argue that you know for, for some people that 50th game wouldn't have been the most entertaining for a neutral because it was very you know defensively minded and you look at the games you know for example the Patriots the Rams as well uh Brian have you any more points to add before we go yeah one other memory of that game is um you know when you get to my age group early 40s a friend of mine who was a Broncos fan for a long time and he lost interest because the coverage went off for a while but when it came to that Super Bowl, he contacted me and said, what's the plans? I said, we're going to the World Shed. Came in and I gave him three hours on how Peyton Manning had done XYZ all season and, the, and that the Broncos were definitely going to win. And he hadn't watched the game in five or six years. And by the end of the fourth quarter, he was saying to me, do you really know what you're talking about? <laughs> I asked that question every Sunday at 9 a.m. The brand <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Mark, final point, and then the add on that big game. Yeah, I mean, Michael, the big, you know, the big game's coming ahead to the, uh, later this week, and of course, legends will be made, and some people will come out with exceptional performances and end up getting paid massively in free agency. That game spawned, other than Papa John and Adam Gase, the other person that Peyton Manning has done more for their financial bank balance for was Malcolm Smith, who returned one of those picks, 69 yards in that game, and signed a massive free agent deal after that. So Peyton likes sharing the wealth a bit as well. Uh, probably two incredible defenses at Seahawks defense that year and that Broncos defense two years later in the big game. But for now, boys, uh, I've got my carry up. A big thanks to Carry at Off Lives and Sierra Place for Big Nights in. You can check out the Irish on the Valshire Super Sunday, 4 p.m. for our extravaganza with ridiculous amounts of guests but in the meantime check out Pundit Arena Irish NFL show on both Twitter and Facebook we've got a giveaway for a carry out voucher check it out and thanks for watching and until next time on um, Super Moment Stories of the Big Game we'll see you soon